DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure as always, Chris. I am so excited to talk about the literary work of G.K. Chesterton, and in particular, a book that I, I'm not sure very many are familiar with this one, The Man Who Was Thursday. Yes, many people, I think, many Catholics in particular, are aware of Chesterton's works of, should we say, Catholic apologetics. So his his book, Orthodoxy, and maybe his book, The Everlasting Man, possibly his biographies of uh, Francis of Assisi and St. Thomas Aquinas, and his Father Brown stories, of course. But but fewer people seem to know that Chesterton wrote half a dozen novels, um, and, uh, you know, a variable quality. But The Man Who Was Thursday, I think, is generally agreed to be his his best, his his finest achievement in uh, full length fiction. So uh, I, I've taught it many years at Harvard University and now at Thomas More College. So uh, it's a great favorite of mine. I should have included the subtitle because it is kind of a it's kind of shocking when you are reading that it's a Chesterton, but it's entitled "The Man Who Was Thursday: A Nightmare." Absolutely, and and one of the things that you have to grapple with when you when you read the Man Who Was Thursday, and it is a, is a somewhat confusing book, uh, is to what extent is it uh, a nightmare? Uh, to what extent is it something more than a nightmare? To what extent is it the recovery from a nightmare? To what extent is it showing us that life is not just a nightmare? So certainly the 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 subtitle is something which provokes us to uh, look for the deeper elements in. The novel, the man who was Thursday, was was hugely influenced by Chesterton's engagement and involvement, and ultimately reaction against the the decadent movement of the eighteen nineties. He he was he fell under the the influence of, of of the decadence in general, Oscar Wilde in particular, and that's why you know Chesterton, like Wilde, are great great advocates of of the paradoxical understanding of of, of reality. They both use paradoxes, although perhaps in different ways. And Chesterton was recoiling really up to a point in horror from that decadent experience. Not that he ever indulged in in the sort of crimes that Oscar Wilde indulged in or, or sort of, should we say, descended to the depth that many of the decadents did. But certainly he was tempted to doubt. He fell under the skeptical, the influence of skeptical philosophers such as Schopenhauer, and at some, and at one stage, you know, began to wonder whether anything really existed except the mind, and of course, the, the mind being one's own mind, and that everything else is merely, merely a, a fantasy, and there's no reality beyond the mind of, of, of uh, the subjective mind of the individual. Um, every, everything else, all other people, all other events are, are merely figments of our of our imagination. He was tempted to that primal 
doubt, if you like, that primal skepticism, and recoiled in horror from it. And I think that the man who was Thursday, if you like, is playing out, in some ways, exorcising the demons of that decadent past. He's pre-Catholicism, essentially, if I'm not mistaken. He's a Christian, but he has yet to fully come into communion with the Catholic Church. That's absolutely true in terms of uh, the facts of the matter, but it's a bit difficult and a bit dangerous for Chesterton to start deciding uh, or discussing when actually he became a Catholic, because Chesterton was quite clearly a Catholic long before he formalized the relationship. So, for instance, you know, the two great Catholic works that people ascribe to Chesterton are The Everlasting Man, which was written in 1926, so four years after his conversion, um, but uh, also Orthodoxy which was written in 1908, which is 13 or 14 years before his conversion. Uh, but no, very few people would argue that, the, that orthodoxy by Chesterton is anything but profoundly orthodox in a Catholic understanding of that word. And the interesting thing is that orthodoxy was written in 1908, as I said, the same year in which Chesterton wrote The Man Who Was Thursday. And one of the very interesting things is the extent to which the ideas of, of orthodoxy are, can be seen being played with if you like, uh, in, the, in, in the novel, in the plot of the novel of The Man Who Was Thursday. Would you say that for our contemporary mindset, many of us may not fully appreciate the, the theme of the anarchist, that we may not recognize it in our midst, but it is the, one of the central issues that he kind of enters into in this novel. Yeah, I think we need to understand the word anarchist on two levels, as as uh, Chesterton actually quite clearly does and plays with in the novel. There's the purely political level of the anarchist, and certainly anarchy uh, as a political movement is much less prominent now than it was in the, in the, in the days when Chesterton wrote the novel. In, in the first decade of the 20th century, there were a lot of actual anarchist uh, terrorist attacks and assassinations and people being politicians being murdered by anarchist terrorists. So mm -hmm. it was very much, uh, you know, if you like, an anarchism was what we might say Islamic uh, fundamentalism might be now as, as this, sort of, this sort of manic extremism responsible for terrorizing the, the population. So there's certainly that, that in the background of Chesterton's novel, and that aspect of it, of course, has dated in the sense that, of course, political anarchy is not the force that it once was. But there's a deeper anarchy that the novel's really grappling with, and that, that sort of anarchy is very much still with us. And that's the, the metaphysical, the philosophical anarchy, the, the fundamental nihilism, the fundamental denial of all goodness. First of all, the den denial of the existence of God, but also the denial of the existence of good and evil. Uh, the anarchist character in, in uh, The Man Who Was Thursday says at one point, we have developed, we despise rights and we despise wrongs. We have, we have abolished right and wrong. And, and actually, Gabriel Syme, the good character in it, says, well, I hope you will also abolish uh, right and left. That's much more problematic to me, which is uh, showing that for Chesterton, politics is, is inadequate to actually grapple with these deeper issues and, and, and deepest issues on the level of philosophy. And one of the key elements of The Man Who Was Thursday is that bad philosophy is much more dangerous and much more deadly than a serial killer. You know, a serial killer may kill a dozen people, but a bad philosophy may kill millions. In that may, may kill millions, has killed millions. You know, the secular fundamentalism of the French Revolution, the secular fundamentalism of the Russian Revolution, 
the secular fundamentalism of communism in China, the secular fundamentalism of Nazi Germany. These are all the products of, of bad philosophies. Uh, and so bad philosophy, Chesterton is saying in this novel, is much more deadly and much more dangerous than the ordinary individual sins of a, of a human being. Mm. Now, the, the fact is, this is a novel. And it, like with Chesterton, it is great fun to enter into. It has, as you've mentioned, its protagonist, Gabriel Syme, who we first encounter as a poet, who along with Lucian Gregory, who is somebody he encounters and interacts with, you have this dialogue between the two poets. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think it's working very much on a metaphysical and metaphorical level as well, because, you know, even the names, you know, Gabriel uh, and Lucian, uh, so we've got this sort of angelic Gabriel and Lucifer here, the devil and the angel, uh, mm. fighting out these these primary principles of of right and wrong uh, in terms of beauty and order in the cosmos. And you know, Chester would return to this a few years later with his novel, The Ball and the Cross, which begins actually with um, uh, Professor Lucifer. Uh, who's in a flying ship and quite clearly is, is a devil himself in the mask, if you like, in the, in the disguise of a, of, a, of a mad scientist. So Chesterton always is dealing uh, and working on the level of theology and philosophy and metaphysics, and things are not necessarily always what they would appear on the purely literal level. So yes, Gabriel Simon, Lucy and Gregory are the forces of, of, of light and the forces of darkness in, in the novel. You have to just love a novel that brings up the elements of poetry in it. I mean, that that would become a part of the discussion, and yeah. you know the whole mix of the book. Yeah, well, of course, as I said, that the novel is up to a point uh, a reaction against the decadent movement, and one aspect of the decadent movement was the art for art's sake. That basically art is 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 lawless. It doesn't ha- it doesn't have the answer to morality. Uh, or, to, or to concepts of right and wrong, it just does its own thing. Um, and so Lucian Gregory, the anarchist poet, basically is advocating this lawlessness, this art for art's sake. And Gabriel Syme basically is saying that, no, I, ultimately art is subject to the same laws as everything else, and it has to be art for God's sake. And th- 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 so again, you know, even when we're talking about poetry, we're talking about poetry on a, on a deep philosophical level. Now, I think it's important, if it helped me anyway, Joseph, to, that I realized that being written at essentially around the turn of the, uh, the century, the 1900s, that when you have two poets coming together, you could put them in the 21st century as potentially two musicians who uh, write songs, and that, you know, the, the type of popular songsmithing that we do today the same type of arguments could be made in the discussions. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as always, you know, the, the concepts of right and wrong, of good and evil, of true and false, uh, of beauty and ugliness are always timely. Uh, in other words, they never go out of date. They're always timely because they're, because they're timeless. You know, they're true of all times and of all places, wherever human beings are and wherever human beings engage in the good, the true, and the beautiful through creativity, these same principles are always going to apply. They're unchanging, uh, basically uh, an unchanging dialectic between the forces of, forces of light and the forces of darkness, the forces of goodness and, and the forces of evil. 
I don't think it's giving anything away to the to the reader that Gabriel Syme, our protagonist, is a recruited secret agent, essentially, of Scotland Yard. Yeah, I mean, basically, the wonderful thing about this is, in many ways, it, it's uh, it's a, it's a detective story, and there's lots of detectives in it. Uh, you know, so, so Chesterton is doing what he does so well with his Father Brown stories. He's obviously very at home in the genre of detective fiction, but of course, it's much, much more than that. It's working on this level of of of, of deep philosophy and deep theology. And the, the key ingredient in the end is, you know, uh, what is at the bottom of reality when you when you dig deep enough into the reality of the cosmos, um, what do you find? Do you find, as the anarchists are suggesting, ultimately nothing? That there is nothing, there's no order, there's no meaning? And this is, uh, again, Chesterton as a prophet, because this is written long before the, the ideas of, of postmodernism, which has plagued the, uh, particularly the, the uh, literature in the, uh, in, in the past 50 or 60 years. Um, long before all of that, you know, basically this denial of any goodness, any truth, any ultimate objective reality, that when you go deep enough, you find nothing. Or when you go deep enough, do you find God and goodness? And that basically, the whole of the novel really is, is chase. It's looking for the ultimate criminal who turns out, of course, to be to be an image of the of the ultimate good of God Himself. And again, I don't we don't necessarily want to give away the whole plot, all the twists and turns for those that haven't read it before. But basically, you know, what Chesterton is doing is trying to stand us on our heads. You know, Chesterton said uh, at one stage that we have to stand on our heads in order to be able to see things for clearly for the first time. Because when we see things all the time, we take them for granted, even the most beautiful things. Uh, I'm gonna, let me give you an example to try to illustrate what I'm trying to say here. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I love watching the birds on our bird feeder out the back of our house here. And every day we get cardinals coming. And of course, cardinals are very beautiful, but you take them for granted. And then once a year, and not even every year, but once a year occasionally, we have a ro- rose-breasted grossmont come through, and it comes through just for one day. It's en route to somewhere else. It's migrating, and it basically comes to the bird feeder to fill up and refuel for its journey. And I'm completely breathless whenever I see it because of the surprise of something unexpected. And yet, of course, you stand the, the rose-breasted grossmont beside uh, beside the uh, grosbeak. Sorry, the rose-breasted grosbeak beside uh, the cardinal. The cardinal is every bit as beautiful. But we take the cardinal for granted because it's common. So Chesterton, what Chesterton tries to do is try to say we need sometimes we need to stand on our head to remind ourselves of how beautiful and how good the common things that we take for granted are. And sometimes when we do that, when we stand on our heads, we realize actually that we're standing the right way up for the first time and that we've actually been standing on our heads for the whole of our lives prior to that. And that, of course, is a, is a very if you like, somersaulting way of talking about conversion. And another thing about The Man Who Was Thursday, it's very much a novel of conversion. The various characters in it at various times are converted. Um, and so there's, the, 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 there's this transformation, this, this transfiguration from darkness to light that happens in so many of the different characters. So in, in other words, what Chester's showing is when you go really deeply into the cosmos, you don't find nothing, you don't find a black hole, you don't find darkness. You find light, you find good, goodness, you find truth, you find beauty. Ultimately, of course, you find God. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare Chapter 2 The Secret of Gabriel Syme Syme sat watching him with some respect in his large blue eyes. 
What do you call this tremendous president of yours? You see, there are seven members of the Central Anarchist Council, and they are named after days of the week. He is called Sunday, by some of his admirers, Bloody Sunday. It is curious you should mention the matter, because the very night you have dropped in, if I may so express it, is the night on which our London branch, which assembles in this room, has to elect its own deputy to fill a vacancy in the council. The gentleman who has for some time past played with propriety and general applause, the difficult part of Thursday, has died quite suddenly. Consequently, we have called a meeting this very evening to elect a successor. He got to his feet and strolled across the room with a sort of smiling embarrassment. "'I feel somehow as if you were my mother, Syme,' he continued casually. "'I feel that I can confide anything to you, as you have promised to tell nobody.' In fact, I will confide to you something that I would not say in so many words to the anarchist who will be coming to this room in about ten minutes. We shall, of course, go through a form of election, but I don't mind telling you that it is practically certain what the result will be. He looked down for a moment modestly. It is almost a settled thing that I am to be Thursday. My dear fellow, said Syme heartily, I congratulate you. A great career! Gregory smiled in deprecation, and walked across the room, talking rapidly. "'As a matter of fact, everything is ready for me on this table,' he said, "'and the ceremony will probably be the shortest possible.' Syme also strolled across to the table, and found lying across it a walking-stick, which turned out, on examination, to be a sword-stick, a large Colt's revolver, a sandwich-case, and a formidable flask of brandy. Over the chair, beside the table, was thrown a heavy-looking cape or cloak. "'I have only to get the form of election finished,' continued Gregory with animation. "'Then I snatch up this cloak and stick, stuff these other things into my pocket, step out of a door in this cavern, which opens on the river, where there is a steam tug already waiting for me, and then—then—oh, the wild joy of being Thursday!' And he clasped his hands. Syme who had sat down once more with his usual insolent languor, got to his feet with an unusual air of hesitation. "'Why is it?' he asked vaguely. "'That I think you are quite a decent fellow. Why do I positively like you, Gregory? This is the funniest situation I have ever been in in my life, and I am going to act accordingly. Gregory, I gave you a promise before I came into this place. That promise I would keep under red-hot pincers, "'Would you give me, for my own safety, a little promise of the same kind?' "'A promise?' asked Gregory, wondering. "'Yes,' said Syme, very seriously. "'A promise. I swore before God that I would not tell your secret to the police. "'Will you swear by humanity, or whatever beastly thing you believe in, "'that you will not tell my secret to the anarchists?' "'Your secret?' asked the staring Gregory. "'Have you got a secret?' "'Yes,' said Syme. "'I have a secret.' Then, after a pause, "'Will you swear?' Yeah, there are so many points in this book that I just, I just enjoyed, because things of what you thought were so clear, it turns out that it's totally turned around. And that happens for the characters so often. They think they're in a certain position, but then it turns out it wasn't 
what it appeared to be. And because it's Chesterton and the way that he's writing, it's done so fairly and so well that it almost you could look at events in your own life and how often are we so certain that things are a certain way and we only come to find out through a particular revelation that it wasn't at all what it appeared to be. Exactly. That basically, that that on on the deepest level, we should always be open to surprise because goodness and fullness of God's creation is surprising. It's shocking. It's stunning. It's stunning. It's astonishing. All of these words, and I think ultimately, the only way that you can open your eyes to the goodness of reality is through humility. And ultimately, the other thing that's happening in the Man Who Was Thursday is the conversion of the central of the main characters from a position of pride which darkens their view of reality and blinds them to it to a position of humility where they actually come to to see the beauty and goodness of that which is around them that which which, which they're being presented with um, and uh, through that conversion through humility through the humility of heart they come to understand the goodness and truth of reality itself it it's not a a long novel but it's one of those that it's so full and rich that you have to ask yourself if you walk into a modern day bookstore and you see these big thick books that sell for outrageous prices and you think why would i want to spend money or time on something like that when i can have so much i'll say it fun reading chesterton Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's said that small is beautiful, and certainly Chesterton's novels, none of them are particularly long, but they're full of goodness, they're full of truth, and, you know, they're full of insights that, you know, on almost every page. You know, Chesterton, of course, writes very epigrammatically, so there's, there seem to be these epigrams, these, these catchy thoughts on, on almost every page that are just delightful, you know, and it's, it, they're a page-turner in the best sense, not only because there are all these twists and turns in the plot, and there are certainly twists and turns in the plot almost on every page, but there are all these wonderful insights into the deepest uh, aspects of reality, again, almost on every page. So you really feel, the way I look at it, uh, the, way I, the, the way I sometimes describe it when I'm teaching this book to my students, is that when you read Chesterton, you're basically taking a roller coaster ride with, with a genius. You know, your, your breath's being taken away, you're going up, you're going down, um, and, uh, you know, there's, you're shaken up a bit, and it's a bit ramshackle, it's not as, you know, the, the, some of it's a bit loose, but, you know, you're basically taking a roller coaster ride with, gen- with a genius, and uh, that's something for which we, we should all be grateful. I think it, it bears discussion, the fact that he is fair in his writings when it comes to detective work. You had mentioned earlier Father Brown, and many may not be familiar with the series, which would be unfortunate because I think it's one of the best ones, if not the best one out there. Because unlike, say, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Sherlock Holmes because there's always some type of twist you wouldn't see coming, and it's, it's almost unfair. But Chesterton, he kind of guides you each step of the way that if you stay there with him, you will come to the conclusion. Right. I mean, the, the big difference between uh, Sherlock Holmes and, and Father Brown is that Sherlock Holmes comes to the correct conclusions through forensic materialism, whereas Father Brown comes to the correct decision through his understanding of human nature and the sinfulness of man, also the goodness of man. So again, 
Father Brown's a philosopher, uh, Sherlock Holmes is a scientist. Um, and I think, again, this is, this is a, a philosopher and a theologian, of course, Father Brown is. Um, so I think that's the principal difference. That's certainly why I, I, I love Father Brown and find it much more difficult to warm to Sherlock Holmes, although I know many, many people who love Sherlock Holmes. Man Who Was Thirsty is probably the most difficult and baffling of Chesterton's novels. And I don't know of anybody that's read The Man Who Was Thursday uh, for the first time and understood all of it. Now, if you're the sort of person that's, that's irritated by being a little bit confused at the end, then obviously the book might irritate you. But I would say it's a challenge. And the good thing about a book like that is to keep going back to it because um, it, it, it always comes, comes alive because you haven't completely encompassed it within your own mentality. You haven't, you, you don't, doesn't, you don't contain it because it's, it's bigger than that containment will allow. So every time we revisit it, we find new things. But actually, uh, for Chesterton's fiction, I think The Man Who Was Thursday ultimately is, is a book that's much better, particularly for, for, for younger people, much better read within a classroom environment, which is one of the reasons I teach it uh, so often, um, in order to be able to really bring to light these, uh, these aspects of the work which might not be too obvious otherwise. Uh, but I would actually say for, for those wanting to, to introduce themselves outside the classroom, to, to Chesterton, uh, Chesterton's fiction, that is. Uh, certainly the Father Brown stories are a good way in. Uh, and, and I think that, for me, the, the, the most accessible of Chesterton's novel is a, is a novel called The Ball on the Cross, which is a, basically a wonderful engagement between a, a Catholic character and, and an atheist character and how the rest of the world views their differences. Uh, and, and in the end, you come to actually respect both the atheist and the Catholic more than the pragmatic cynicism of most of the other characters. It's actually very, very interesting. Lots of good arguments for the Catholicism. Uh, and I think much more accessible and less confusing than The Man Thursday. But The Man Thursday, I think, is a better work of literature. There's so much in it. It's so rich. It, it, it cannot be contained uh, with just one reading. But, of course, that said with, said about, can be said about all the great works of literature. They're worth revisiting because they are so rich and they have so much to teach us. The good professor that you are, what would you have the listener bring to his reading of this work? Well, I would say that you have to bring with it an, an openness to be, uh, to be surprised, an openness to be, uh, to be shocked and stood on your head. Um, and if you bring that openness, which can only come through humility, if you read this work with humility, you will be a happier, wiser person for the experience of reading it. I I love it. It's like drinking a fine brandy as opposed ah. to to uh, having you know the, the light beer. No, um, I, I, I've just had a little vision of heaven there. I, I just had a little vision of heaven of reading the Man of Thursday with you and sipping fine brandy. That's something we need to do one of these days, Chris. It sounds good. We'll, we'll invite uh, our many listeners to come along with us if we do that because it's <laughs> that, just... would be, that would that would be a party worth going to. Well, final thoughts, Joseph. Well, only that Chesterton, uh, what we've done in this sort of uh, short, uh, short interview is introduce uh, the listeners to one of Chesterton's works, The Man of His Thursday. The Chesterton is so rich. He wrote so many different types of books, but always some profoundly and profusely Catholic uh, wisdom. And I would just uh, strongly encourage uh, your listeners to get to know Chesterton better. Joseph Pierce, thank you so much. My pleasure as always, Chris. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with 
hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.